0: C'est cool. Good morning, to be seated. The case of Daniel Hutchins against His Majesty the King, Michael Lacey, for the Appellant Daniel Hutchins, Michael Lacey, and Marcela Aumada for the Intervenor Criminal Trial Lawyers Association, uh, Stacey uh, M. Purser, and Danielle J. Song Casey. For the respondents, His Majesty the King, Julie Daborde and Brandon Green. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Malazvin Goswami. Mr. Lisi.
1: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. This appeal involves an appeal court looking for error where none existed, and worse yet, characterizing factual findings as errors of law alone. It's the appellant's submission that in allowing the appeal in the court below, the appellate court strayed from their appellate lane, exceeded their jurisdiction, and ought not to have interfered with what were either findings of fact made by the trial judge, or questions of mixed fact and law. As to the alleged error in the assessment of the mens rea for murder, it's our submission that the legal error was manifestly flawed. The Crown urged the trial judge to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that mens rea had been established based upon inferences to be drawn from common sense, the expert evidence, and there was conflicting expert evidence in this case, and the nature of the assault of conduct. And the trial judge was not persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt to draw that inference, and that gives no right of appeal on behalf of the Crown. As it relates to the second error, in my submission, you'd have to be satisfied that the trial judge did not understand the law of self-defense, was not presumed to understand that the law as it's existed long before the amendments to Section 341 in 2015 require an assessment of the reasonableness of the overarching conduct of the assault of actor, in this case the appellant. And in interfering with the trial judge's uh, conclusion in the court below, in our submission what the lower court did was to presume that this trial judge would have engaged in a reasonableness assessment, which by its very nature connotes an objective requirement, but engaged in a reasonableness assessment from a solely subjective perspective, as that court put it. Appellate requests that this court intervene and restore his acquittal. The central question for the trial judge in this case, the central questions were factually driven. This was a factual case. Did the appellant's actions cause the death of the victim? The defense lawyer in the court below argued that they did not based upon the medical evidence and the trial judge resolved that question in favor of the Crown. Secondly, did the appellant intend to cause the victim bodily harm that he knew was likely to cause death and was reckless as to whether death ensued. That was a factual question in our submission and the trial judge resolved that against the Crown in favor of the appellant in the face of direct evidence from the appellant as to what he was doing and why he was doing it at the time. And the third question was, did the Crown prove that the appellant's actions in restraining the deceased which included the chokehold, was not reasonable in all of the circumstances with the primary question being, as argued before the trial judge, the proportionality of the accused actions in response to the deceased's assaultive conduct. And obviously critical to the trial judge's uh, resolution of the proportionality analysis was understanding the nature of the chokehold that was used in this case as well as the question of the medical evidence, the expert evidence, on the use of the chokehold. And the issue of of the medical evidence is an important one when looking at the trial judge's reasons in this case.
2: Um, You've been very clear, and I'm following you uh, very closely, except that I'm not quite sure whether the last point you're making is with respect to murder or manslaughter. And I think it would be helpful to clarify that, please.
1: Yes, thank you, Justice Rowe. And in fact, the first thing I wanted to turn to was this suggestion in the lower court that the trial judge misunderstood or didn't appreciate that a chokehold is an inherently dangerous act. And somehow that that conclusion was one that, first of all, affected the mens rea for murder, which we submitted did not. But more importantly, that that somehow uh, led the trial judge Uh, into a general error. And I I think it's important on that issue if you just turn to the reasons for judgment. I mean, recognizing, as this court indicated in Walker, that in the context of an acquittal, the context where a trial judge acquits uh, someone, the sufficiency of reasons have to be understood in that context. And here, what happened was the trial judge turned to the issue of self-defense only in relation to manslaughter. And I take from that that the trial judge on the issue of proportionality, the self-defense would have failed for the appellant if he had intended to kill or intended to cause bodily harm that he knew was likely to cause death. So if you turn to the trial judge's reasons for judgment, we've included them, and you have them in lots of places, but again in the condensed book at tab 2, You'll see that at paragraphs 99 and 100, so page 19 of the trial judge's decision. The trial judge uh, finds that causation uh, earlier had been proven. The trial judge finds that the appellant's conduct in using the chokehold was an assault, uh, an intentional application of force without consent and then the trial judge says, however, considering the evidence before me, I must look at Section 34 of the Criminal Code because an assault is not considered an unlawful act if it is not done in self-defense or defense of, a, of another person. And I'm sorry, it's taken me a long time to get back to your question, Justice Rowe. But there was, if the trial judge did not recognize that objectively the use of a chokehold was an inherently dangerous act that could cause serious bodily harm, that's all that's required for manslaughter. If the trial judge had not recognized that, there was no need to turn to a section 34 one analysis. The appellant would have been acquitted outright of manslaughter. So the acquittal with respect to manslaughter was necessarily dependent upon the trial judge's assessment as to whether the respondent had proven beyond a reasonable doubt he did not act in lawful self-defense. And again, I mean, We we see it in other contexts, obviously. We see it often when appellants come to this court, accused people who complain about the sufficiency of reasons, who parse through reasons for judgment trying to look for legal error. But you have to read the trial judge's reasons here holistically. So this suggestion by the appellate court at uh, tab 12 of the condensed book, where we've included it again, at paragraph 5, that the trial judge <clears throat> the court says this at paragraph 5 page 3 of the appellate decision while the respondent admitted he was trying to stop mr windsor from struggling including possibly rendering him <coughs> unconscious the trial judge did not assess this evidence with respect to what the respondent believed or intended concerning considering the dangerousness of the squeezing of Mr. Windsor's neck to the point of unconsciousness or the possible recklessness of his actions. and that But for that error, the verdict on second degree murder may well have been different. And then on to paragraph six, of course they talk about the chokehold as well. But again, I I submit to the court that if, it's not about giving the trial judge the benefit of a doubt here, it's about looking at what the trial judge says and and the path of reasoning of the trial judge.
3: Can I ask you, so with regard, you just brought us to where the Court of Appeal talks about lemon. Lemon, as you know, is a sentencing decision. Very, very different facts. So can I get your comments or your arguments with regard to how the Court of Appeal used lemon in uh, their decision?
1: And and this this is the subject of a paragraph in our factum, but I commend you to the interveners factum on this issue as well, because they picked up where, where we had started, and I wholly adopt the uh, intervener's factum on this issue, that when you're looking at that question in Lemon about an underlying offense where the intention has to be to cause unconsciousness, to render someone incapable, you're comparing apples to oranges in this context anyway. Uh, so, So my answer is this is a misapplication of Lemon by the appellate court. But secondly, even characterizing what the trial judge did as a failure to appreciate that a chokehold can be dangerous was not fair to what the trial judge, in fact, found in this case. The medical evidence was clear on this issue. Both experts agreed. I mean, as a matter of common sense, I think you could get there without experts, but both experts agreed if you use a chokehold, there's a risk of cutting off the air. Forget about compressing carotid arteries. There's a risk of cutting off someone's air. There's a risk of compressing arteries, and that has a dangerous component to it. So that was never really an issue. I know the defense lawyer tried to make a claim there was no causation here, but this case was never really about that question.
4: So the, is it fair to say then that what the trial judge did is, must have done, is acknowledge that a chokehold is dangerous. It's inherently dangerous, but the intent wasn't to cause unconsciousness in this circumstance. That's what happened in this case. That's the finding that was made.
1: Absolutely. And it was fully supported by the evidence by the medical evidence, because you recall there's the two competing experts, Dr. Milroy, both renowned experts in, in pathology, forensic pathology, Dr. Milroy and Dr. Chasson, and Dr. Chasson in particular disagreed on a critical point with Dr. Milroy, and it was this issue about the length of time it would take before you'd cause death, which is obviously from a chokehold, which is obviously relevant to the question of the likelihood or your knowledge of the likelihood that you would cause death. And in this case, Dr. Cheson said, well, no, I'm sorry, I I, I know Dr. Milroy, I respect him, I've I've read his evidence, I'm aware of what he said, but Dr. Milroy's suggestion that 30 seconds goes to death is, in fact, not supported by the literature. Dr. Cheson said, unfortunately, we have to study these things through particular videos that are taken of people who compress their neck in certain circumstances. We don't do experiments, of course, but Dr. Chaison said, no, the literature suggests the opposite. The literature suggests most people who have had their neck compressed from a chokehold survive. Would they, you, get, they revive within 30
5: seconds. Would you and, go as far, Mr. Lacy, to say that the word inherently is the source of mischief here? In so far as, if I understand your argument correctly there, this is a fact-driven, contextual kind of evaluation, it can be dangerous, it is often dangerous, but is inherently, does that put us on the wrong path of the basis of a necessary inference as opposed to a permissible one?
1: Absolutely. I mean. You can imagine a chokehold used among siblings who are uh, you know, wrestling, and, and I'm not suggesting no, that. This I'm, is I'm
2: going to intervene great. here because this to me is a point of clarification that I think needs to be addressed. There's such a thing as a headlock.: Yes, right? You grab somebody around the neck. You don't compress their neck, but, but they're, they're immobilized. And, and kids horsing around use headlocks all the time, and maybe it's not a great idea, but don't kill anybody. Second, you cut off the air supply, right? You, in, which is usually the, the two terms which are used in the vernacular is choking or strangulation. You cut off the air supply, thereby no oxygen is being taken up by the lungs, but the heart keeps pumping it's just that there's no oxygen in the bloodstream and eventually it affects the brain and then there's a third situation which is to cut off the blood supply to the brain which isn't stopping someone from drawing air into their lungs but preventing the oxygen which is in the blood supply from flowing to the brain and in the end whether you cut off the ability to draw air into the lungs and thereby capture oxygen, or whether you prevent the flow of blood to the brain, it is the absence of oxygen to the brain which causes the person to pass out and eventually will cause them to die. But, like, which is it? What happened? Because they're not the same thing.
1: Well, Well, granted, any time you compress the neck versus a headlock, the expert evidence was, and I, I, I think you can say as a matter of common sense, that there's a dangerousness component to it if you compress the neck to the point of cutting off either the airway or compressing the carotid arteries that carry, that carry the blood. For, I, I appreciate the question, Justice Gosselin, and I'm not trying to backtrack from it, but there are headlocks and there are chokeholds. It depends on what is actually done in the circumstances of the case. You could, in theory, put someone in a chokehold and not cut off their airway and not cut off their, uh, the flow of blood in the carotid artery, depending upon the force that was used. In this case, I accept, obviously, there was sufficient force that it had the effect of compressing the artery in someone who was particularly susceptible. Someone who was vulnerable to that type of compression. So, unlike what might ordinarily happen to a healthy person, where there'd be recovery, in this case, tragically, the deceased did not recover. And he, quite quickly, because of the comorbidities on the evidence of Dr. Chesson, uh those all contributed to the fact that he died as a so consequence. Maybe,
5: maybe it is inherently dangerous. Well, I've lost you a bit, because a moment ago, You suggested that it might not be.
1: Because you can have a chokehold that does not compress the airways.
5: Right.
1: So you you can put your arms, I mean, it depends, I guess, what do you define a chokehold. If you're choking someone to the point where there's enough pressure that it compresses the airway or compresses the carotid artery in the way in which Justice Rowe understands, and I believe that to be an accurate assessment, then of course there's an inherent dangerousness in doing that. So if you, for example, choke someone for the purpose of making them pass out, bringing them to unconsciousness, the sort of MMA chokehold that the appellant was cross-examined on length about by the trial crown if that's your purpose, if you do that with the purpose of trying to render someone unconscious, is there an inherent dangerousness in doing so? Yes. So on your question of inherent, that was the lemon Scenario where the chokehold was being used to incapacitate, which was the underlying aggravating feature of uh, that that particular statutory context.
4: If one if one uh, postulates that Mr. Hodgson pulled out a gun, um, it may be that that is closer to the uh, situation where you have to get into self defence rather than. And the common sense inference becomes inep- pretty much inevitable because if you fire a gun, but this is actually not that far on further away from the use of a gun, and it is a situation where we it 's fair to say it uh, may be that one has to get into a uh, more of an analysis of intent uh, and it 's fair to say that the intent isn't inevitable or isn't as inevitable as it would be had it been a gun and so I wonder if that's a helpful way of looking at this that this isn't as it's, it's serious it's dangerous, but it's not a gun, and therefore we don't need to necessarily get to um, uh, to we, we just still ha- have to uh, perhaps in this case but that that could be one way of looking at what, what happened in it, this it case. could
1: be justice Jamal the interesting thing obviously about the gun example, which is where I was going to go to, even then it's a question of fact for the jury exactly even then. Even then where anyone in a room would say, if you point a gun at someone's head and you pull the trigger, surely you know it's likely to cause serious bodily harm that you believe, but you know is likely to cause death and you're reckless as to whether death ensues. But of course it depends. It depends on, is there evidence of mental disorder? Is there evidence of intoxication to the point of not maybe appreciating foreseeable consequences? But even if there's not, even if there's not, you never take it away from the jury. It would be an error of law to take that away from the jury because the question of intention is a question of fact. The defining of intention is a question of law, obviously. But here the trial judge, both with respect to second degree murder expressly defined it, and as it relates to manslaughter implicitly because of the passages I took you to, including the concluding passage of the trial judge, the concluding paragraph, paragraph 123, it's only because the trial judge has a doubt on self-defense that the appellant is not guilty of manslaughter. That tells you everything you want to know about whether or not the trial judge appreciated that the test for manslaughter was different. It only required the objective uh, assessment. This whole idea of the common sense inference as an analytical tool, by the way, that's all it is, right? We, sorry, I shouldn't say it like that. We we give it to jurors because jurors are not in the business of determining the question of someone's intention, right? As Justice Moldaver suggested in wally it's an amorphous con- uh, concept for a layperson apply. How do you determine someone's intent?
5: Well it's more than that. It's the devil himself knoweth not the thought of man. It's you you, you can't unless the unless you have an admission of intention. Or a denial. Or a denial. But even as a Care. but even as a even even if you have an admission or a denial, a jury, a trier of fact more generally, can't know what's going on in someone else's head. So you need You need a basis for doing it.
1: It's a way of explaining to the jury how to assess circumstantial evidence on the issue of intention. That's all it is.
2: It's it's the same basis upon which you know when to cross the street, because you learn from experience the pattern by which drivers operate, and therefore you can anticipate and predict their behavior. It's inherent in getting up and walking from this chair and going through that door, right? If I exercise my legs, I will stand up. If I push against the door, it will open. It it is a function of experience and the patterns one sees in life.
1: It's a way of telling the jury, look, this is not a mystery. Don't, just because you have to find what an accused's intention is, this is not some mystical way of looking at the world. You can rely on your own common sense about consequences and intended action. The criticism in my submission here, though, of the appellate court is a finding that the trial judge didn't apply common sense in the the resolution of the issue of intention. One of the problems with a common sense inference about intended consequences in this chokehold scenario was this issue about how long it would have taken to cause death. And that's why, again, I I come back to the expert evidence in this issue. So common sense inferences are helpful analytical tools, but you need to look at the evidentiary framework. And the trial judge, on two occasions, references Dr. Chaison's evidence as informing the assessment, both on the self-defense, but also with respect to this issue of the appellant's intention. And you had his evidence. I mean, the trial judge was not required to accept the appellant's evidence, obviously, on the issue of his intention. But to, to your point, Justice Kessa, if there was an expression that at the time the appellant said horrible words like die, I want you to die, words to that effect, obviously a trial judge would be entitled to look to the words uttered and to look at the context and to say, I'm satisfied this appellant had, or this accused had the intention to cause serious bodily harm. He expressed it. I don't even need to... Re- Turn to some common sense inference, he expressed it and that's what happened. So too in this case, I accept that it's not necessary that the trial judge has to accept the appellant's account of his or her intention, but the, in this case, the trial judge did. The trial judge did accept that the sole purpose of using the chokehold was not to render the deceased unconscious, you will not find that in the appellant's evidence. I mean, my friends have filed an extensive compendium, a condensed book, for the purposes of this appeal. I went through it again. I mean, you you, you wonderful clerks here, obviously. Nowhere does the appellant say I choked him for the purpose of rendering him unconscious, despite the appellate court concluding otherwise.
6: And may I just ask this question, um, that uh, the trial judge well, it's taken to know that a common sense inference is is available but not necessarily a binding (laughs) principle of law. But my question is that the Crown actually uh, argued on the basis that a person intends the natural consequences of their act. So what do you say, how does that factor in?
1: It answers itself. I I, I say this, we can presume trial, trial judges apply common sense, first of all, when they're adjudicating questions of intention, questions of fact, that judges don't throw out common sense when they're doing that. So obviously that's number one. And number two, you'd have to also presume that the trial judge, in the face of an argument with respect to this issue and with the book of authorities filed in advance on this issue, so the trial judge could become familiar with them, just decided that no, none of this matters. Instead- Was
6: Seymour in that book? You know,
1: it's interesting, I asked my friends to provide, it's not part of the record, and I asked my friends to provide it, and somewhat surprisingly, Cahill, the pre, the Court of Appeal decision is not in there, and I don't believe Seymour was in there either, but these cases, the ones the Court of Appeal referred to were, of course. So, there's a lot of presuming legal error here to manufacture in my submission legal error. There's a lot of presumptions about what the trial judge would not have understood, what the trial judge did not do in the assessment of the evidence. I mean this is a case, this appellate decision in my submission that never mind blurs the line between questions of law and questions of mixed law in fact. It it fails to recognize there's a line at all and we've provided some authorities obviously on this issue going back to 1969 from this court, Lombard, that makes the point again that mens rea, finding as to whether intention exists or not is necessarily a question of fact. I know my friends rely on a case from Manitoba, uh, Manitoba Court of Appeal, and it's, it, it, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole other than to say it's not, a, 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 it's the, the case does not say actually in application that mens rea is a question of law. It refers to a case, a prior case of the Manitoba Court of Appeal, that deals with the question of what amounts to disease of the mind for the purposes of a different for ncr and that obviously is a question of law
2: isn't the distinction one between did the trial judge either expressly or by necessary implication indicate that they either that they applied the wrong legal framework to determining mens rea, which could be an error of law, or there's nothing to indicate that the wrong legal framework was applied, and it was simply the weighing of the evidence and the factual conclusion which was reached, which isn't a question of law.
1: And that's why we've included in the condensed book uh, the Wally decision from this court at tab 8, and in particular 46, and in, in, in your question Justice Rowe, uh, one of the words you use, the reasons demonstrate that the trial judge did something that's erroneous as a matter of law. And the point was made in uh, in Wally, in an, appellant, uh, uh, an accused appeal context where you didn't have even the same concern. And Justice uh, Moldaver for the court cautions about uh, presuming that trial judges misapplied the law after referring to Moran and J.M.H. Justice Moldaver says in paragraph 46, this is page 456 of the decision, however, as Justice Sapinka made clear in Moran, there's, quote, no obligation in law on a trial judge to record all or any specific parts of the process of deliberation on the facts. and quote. Unless the reasons demonstrate, to your point, Justice Rowe, A consideration of all the evidence in relation to the ultimate issue was not done. The failure to record the fact of it having been done is not a proper basis for concluding that there was an error of law in this respect. And had I had thought of it at the time, I also would have included the Walker decision, uh, which is actually cited in, in JMH, but I don't think has been provided to the court otherwise. It's Justice Binney's decision from 2000 and 8, where Justice Binney as well cautions about scrutinizing reasons for judgment where there's a failure to refer to something and then presuming that that amounts to a misapplication of a uh, well-known legal principle. With that, subject to further questions on really the primary first issue I was arguing, I I thought I would turn to the issue of the trial judge's assessment of self-defense. I have, in our condensed book, I've included uh, the excerpts from uh, Dr. Chasson. My friends have also included the the excerpts from the expert uh, evidence. I just wanted to make the last point I'd make with respect to the first issue. You will see the trial judge fully appreciated the expert evidence in the reasons for judgment, in the review of the facts, and fully appreciated the uh, divergence, where the experts diverged. And I say, obviously, based upon the reasons and reference to Dr. Chason's evidence, preferred the evidence of Dr. Chayson to the evidence of Dr. Milroy. On the issue of the approach to self-defense, I'll, I'll, the first point I make, not that I'm asking the court to do this, but if you conclude there was a legal error in the assessment of self-defense. It's the appellant submission that only affected the acquittal on manslaughter. It has no bearing whatsoever on the acquittal of second-degree murder, and the court never grapples with this in the court below. But if this court were satisfied there was legal error, the new trial order should be uh, amended and restricted to the offense of manslaughter. But of course, it's our position that there was no legal error at all. The trial judge did have not have the benefit of this court's decision in Cahill, but this court's decision in Cahill obviously was largely related to one of the other factors under Section 34 the role of the person in the incident. But as the intervener for the Attorney General of Ontario makes clear, the issue of proportionality being an objective assessment and requiring reasonableness is not a new concept under section 34, the amendments in 2015 to section 34. This is a well-known concept of law. If anything, proportionality now is only a factor to be considered in the assessment of reasonableness, whereas historically for certain types of self-defense, disproportional response deprived you of self-defense.
5: And I would... I'm sorry, Mr. Lacy, I, I, you... you uh you said something I didn't expect you to say, so I just want to roll you back to this idea of the distinct character of of the the judgment on self defense if we f- we were to find there was no error of law on intent for murder uh, that we could order but but didn't give uh, a fine fine for you on self defense that we could order a new trial confined to manslaughter. That's your point? You see no overlap in the, I mean, for example, paragraph five, the the chokehold is alluded to as relevant to intent for murder and manslaughter. I'm just wondering if if we, uh, before you go into the detail on your your manslaughter point, and without prejudice to your argument that there was no error of law here either, does that necessarily follow? It
1: it does, in my submission, on a proper appreciation of the trial judge's reasons. One of the things the appellate court in the court below did not appreciate was that the self-defense analysis was unnecessary unless the trial judge accepted that but for the availability of self-defense, the appellant would be guilty of manslaughter. So that's the that's the uh, foundation of that submission that I just made to the court. I know the court expresses it in the court below. Otherwise, they're wrong, respectfully. I wanted to turn, if I if I could, to. The trial judge's uh, reasons for judgment again uh, on the issue of uh, self defense in particular. And this, in my submission, much like the former ground of appeal, the appellate court here, despite clear language from the trial judge expressing knowledge that the overall question under Section 34.2, which was really what this case was about. At the end of the day, the reasonableness assessment 341C using the factors enumerated in section 342. The trial judge repeatedly uses the word reasonable as the question is it reasonable in the circumstances? Uh, in my submission, the use of the word reasonable necessarily invokes an objective criterion or objective criteria. You're assessing the overall actions of someone against what is reasonable, not to the person, but reasonable in terms of what we expect or what uh, other uh, informed members of the community would do in the circumstances. The trial judge goes through the uh, particular factors under section 34.2. no complaint can be made in that regard. And then really because the Crown's primary position was that the use of the chokehold was not proportional because the Crown wanted the evidence of Dr. Milroy to be preferred on this point. Again, this is where the expert evidence flows in again. Crown's primary position was, no, you used a chokehold that you knew was likely to cause death, and even if you didn't know it, you ought to have known it was was going to do that in the circumstances, and the use of a chokehold could never be proportional to someone who's not threatening your life. That's in essence what the Crown argued. So if you turn to the trial judge's analysis of this, paragraph 120 is the operative paragraph on proportionality. Trial judge starts with the nature and proportionality of the person's response to the use of threat or force. And then it's well accepted that a person in life-threatening uh, situation, and then goes on and looks at the underlying facts as informing the question of proportionality. And if the last sentence, a known calm-down move that could be executed from behind, would have seemed to be proportional in all of the circumstances, and my submission is an articulation of a reasonableness. What would have been reasonable in all the circumstances? As as Justice Binney suggested in the Walker case, uh, are are the reasons maybe less than ideal? I mean, yes, maybe. Uh, But do they demonstrate that the trial judge approached this question solely from the subjective perspective of the accused, without regard to what the actual operative question was, which is the modified objective assessment? Uh, reasonableness. In my submission, again, why would we presume the trial judge misunderstood the law in this area? And why would the trial judge at the end, if you look to the final, or the the paragraph under paragraph 122, why would the factor of proportionality cause the trial judge the greatest concern if she accepted that the defendant thought what he was doing was proportional in the circumstances? It caused her the greatest, greatest concern because a chokehold can be dangerous, and what tipped it for the trial judge in finding the Crown failed to meet the burden was the expert evidence that she accepted in Dr. Cheson. She did not misapprehend that evidence. The trial judge didn't make a finding in the absence of evidence. Instead, regrettably, what the court below did was fell into the trap of not of assessing the trial judge's reasons on the basis of what they would have done in the face of this evidence, as opposed to being deferential to the trial judge's factual findings, and as I submitted at the beginning, staying within their appellate lane.
5: Your your colleagues, I think they're going to argue, we'll see, that among the aspects of the evidence that were apparently left out here was the Evidence from the other witnesses, I'm thinking of, is it Mr. Burke, who who said, uh, uh, and Ms. Ford, who said tr- tr- they tried to get him to stop, and that notwithstanding those efforts to get him to stop, he kept going, which they, or f- the, the other side is going to argue that that, by ignoring that evidence, that uh, had an impact on proportionality and the nature of the act. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I would suggest that there's a difference between the failing to avert to all of the evidence and ignoring the evidence. The trial judge in the summary of the facts talks about the evidence at some length, goes through the evidence of each witness at some length. The parties made most of the submissions at the end of the trial were about the factual findings that the trial judge should, should, should find at the end of the day, and effectively that argument being advanced by my friends is a sufficiency of reasons argument, that somehow having not averted specifically to other factors under the proportionality analysis, the trial judge erred in law as to the sufficiency of the reasons. But the trial judge's assessment of what weight to give the evidence, how that evidence factored into the proportionality analysis, all of that is within the domain of the trier of fact. That's the other point I wanted to make on the reasonableness. If if we know, if I learned anything from Cahill, from this court's decision in Cahill, it's that this reasonableness assessment, there's all kinds of things that jurors are told to consider, but at the end of the day, the ultimate weighing of those issues is for the juror.
5: I I guess the worry is that some people have, in JMH, the allusion to taking into account the totality of the evidence, on the one hand, and the Old saw that uh, a trial judge does not have to speak to every specific piece of evidence in arriving at their conclusion. Sometimes are hard to make those two jive, and uh, and I think that might be might be a little bit where the the disagreement may fall.
1: And and I, I agree that 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 is if you look at the case law that I think that is where the. The conundrum can exist in terms of determining the issue. And that's why I come back to uh, Walker in particular about looking at a trial judge's reasons in the context of what the result was, first of all. So in an acquittal case, where it's a crown right of appeal, that informs the context and sufficiency of the reasons. But I'd say this, Justice Casario, as I was thinking about how to described this, if there was a, an agreed statement of fact that the accused choked the deceased for the purpose of rendering him unconscious. That had been an agreed statement of fact. And the trial judge, in going through the analysis of proportionality, says, uh, and I conclude that the accused did not intend to choke him to the point of unconsciousness. Well, that would be clearly a finding of fact in the absence of evidence. It would be a finding of fact in circumstances where there was an admission otherwise. So you could see something in the trial judge's analysis of the issue that gives rise to what would be properly characterized under JMH as an error of law, finding a fact for which there was no evidence. Here, when you look at the trial judge's reasons, What was the question the Crown wanted answered? Was the appellant's action proportional in response to the aggressor? And what did the trial judge conclude? Given the nature of the chokehold in these circumstances, the absence of an intention to cause serious bodily harm that would likely to cause death, the fact that there were these comorbidities, the fact that it happened very quickly, although I'm troubled by proportionality, obviously someone died. Although the trial judge was troubled by proportionality, the trial judge resolved it against the Crown on the issue of having a reasonable doubt. What more was required of the trial judge to not be accused of legal error? And that's why we submit there was no legal error, and we ask this Court to allow the appeal and restore Mr. Hodgson's acquittal. It's not often that I have extra time, although in my experience, it's often the case that the court is quite content with that. So subject to any other questions, those are my respectful submission. Thank you very much.
0: Stacey Persson.
7: Yes, good morning, Justices. The CTLA Alberta intervenes today to provide three main points to narrow the scope of the Alberta Court of Appeals decision in LEMON. First, we submit that chokeholds are not inherently dangerous as a matter of law. Second, even where a trial judge finds that a chokehold is inherently dangerous, that does not lead to the automatic conclusion that a particular accused had the subjective knowledge of the likelihood of death. And finally, that LEMON was a sentencing decision that did not purport to alter the law of homicide and should be confined to the context in which it was made. So, turning to the first point, that chokeholds are not inherently dangerous as a matter of law. Um, It cannot be that inherent dangerousness is a matter of law because it is such a highly fact-specific exercise. So whether a particular chokehold is inherently dangerous depends on how it is done and by whom. Uh, It is a maneuver that is done uh, daily in uh, exercises such as judo or wrestling Uh, Before this court, the respondent argues that the trial judge failed to address the common-sense inference that individuals intend the natural and probable consequences uh, of their actions. Um, And we submit that this is simply an extension of the Court of Appeals decision in Lemon and would ask you to consider what is the common-sense inference that the respondent is asking you to endorse here. Um, And the only common-sense inference that makes sense in the context of this appeal is that individuals who place others in chokeholds intend to cause their death. And we respectfully submit that this is an unworkable proposition when uh, you put it in the context of the everyday examples of chokeholds. So if you were to endorse that submission, uh, the result would be that bouncers who place patrons in chokeholds intend to cause their death or martial artists who place opponents in chokeholds intend to cause their death. And so we submit that the common sense inference uh, was not meant to apply uh, to such actions and was only meant to apply to a much more Uh, obvious actions. So uh, Justice Jamal, I believe, raised the example of uh, a shooting. So the common sense inference might apply, for example, to a situation where someone puts a gun to someone else's head and pulls the trigger. Um, But to say that a trial judge is required to address a common sense inference in every case of murder uh, would respectfully open the door to Uh, pigeonholing certain underlying acts as requiring a common sense inference and would uh, amount to uh, transforming the specific intent for murder uh, to an objective one. And so we asked this court uh, to confirm that Lemon did not set out any sort of common sense inference uh, to apply in every case of choking. Second, the CTLA submits that even where an underlying act has been found to be inherently dangerous, this does not automatically translate into a finding that the accused possessed a subjective uh, understanding of the likelihood of death. And so the improper application of Lemon uh, threatens to blur the demarcation between a danger of death and the likelihood of one. Um, and if this court were to accept the proposition that in choking is always inherently dangerous, as the court below said, The risk that it will be used as a substitute for subjective mens rea is not a remote one. Uh, As you saw in our factum, the uh, Crown uh, in British Columbia relying on Lemon in the case of Day uh, argued that because chokeholds are inherently dangerous, that the judge could uh, infer the knowledge of the likelihood of death. And indeed in some cases, such as Talcri, uh, it appears that judges have fallen into that trap. So that being the case, the CTLA Alberta urges this court to confine Lemon to the context in which it was made. It was a sentencing decision dealing with Section 246 offences and whether uh, sentences should run consecutively or concurrently to the uh, substantive offence. This court uh, should not permit Lemon to extend beyond the boundaries of sentencing uh, and to find a, a purchase in the mens rea analysis for murder. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes.
8: Cool.
4: Yeah.
0: <coughs> Thank you. Please be seated. Jules Laborde.
9: Chief Justice, Justices, the Crown's position on this appeal is that in light of the trial judge's misdirection in law, the court below properly overturned the appellant's acquittal, and their decision to order a new trial should not be disturbed. The trial judge, we say, failed to undertake the correct, proper legal analysis to come to a conclusion both on murder and on manslaughter in her assessment of the self-defense claim. First, to um, provide an outline of my submission, I would like to um, give the court a little roadmap of uh, my submissions this morning. So turning to my condensed book at tab one, I would like to invite the court at the first page which is uh, uh, the outline of our submissions on on the murder charge. So I will first address how the trial judge failed to give the proper legal effect to her findings of fact and to consider the totality of the evidence in determining the nature of the act and the appellant's intent, which led her to um, fail to consider the totality of the evidence supporting the common sense inference, and all of the evidence that she accepted, which supported the common sense inference, and uh, which was relevant to the subjective knowledge and uh, subjective foresight of the appellant. I will address the evidence that the trial judge um, failed to um, consider in her analysis of uh, the common sense inference and subjective foresight, namely the gravity of the injuries, the amount of force, the magnitude of force that was applied, the duration of the chokehold, and also um, the appellant's um, capacity to foresee the likely consequences of his actions, which is really um, the test here. So turning to, um, uh, to murder, The trials,
5: adoption. Can I I stop you here because you've given us your roadmap? But on your roadmap, there's a point that Mr. Lacey makes that is the undercurrent for his whole whole argument, the jurisdictional point. Mm -hmm. And and I understand you're going to argue that there were errors of law, and, and that's fair game. But I'm wondering about the Crown's attitude to an argument such as that, as it reads 676 a of the criminal code and why it's there. Why do we limit your right of appeal to overturn an acquittal? And why should we take seriously arguments that challenge your articulation of an error of law? to overturn an acquittal?
9: Well, here we say the error, and its uh, I don't want to get stuck on the language, but the error was the trial judge, and, and this is what I was coming to, the, to come to a conclusion about the nature of the act, which we say is an inherent part of the rea inquiry for murder. It's a crucial aspect, the nature of what happened there. But can I ask you,
8: are you talking about the legal nature of the act? or the factual nature of the act? Because it seems to me that you've collapsed the finding of of what actually happened, what was the act, mm -hmm. with the legal nature of the act. You're suggesting that there is a necessary legal um, consequence to to that finding of fact.
5: And and can I just to follow up on that exact question to finish my thought to, on my reading, the, the fundamental idea behind Mr. Lacey's complaint mm-hmm. and Justice Karakatsanis' question is that you don't have a right of appeal that would subject the accused to a second trial on the facts. I agree that with you. That there's double jeopardy, that there's a fundamental principle of Canadian criminal law that we sitting on appeal are the guardians against. A trial judge can't do anything about that. It's up to us to determine the gateway through which 676-1A operates. So Double Jeopardy, that uh, Professor Friedman's great book on on Double double Jeopardy, warns courts of appeal to be as precise as possible in the articulation, just to follow up on Justice Karakatsanis' point. And I think it behooves you to help us see the error of law Mm -hmm. as identified by the court of appeal. And, And so that along the way, along your roadmap, please be precise on that. Otherwise, you're going to be subjecting the accused here to a second trial against which the whole of the criminal law in the English tradition rails against. Some jurisdictions don't have appeals from questions of fact, uh, or from acquittals rather. Uh, uh, we do, uh, but it's uh, the narrowest of paths for your roadmap. You're going down a very narrow road.
9: Well, on this narrow road, Turning into tab two of our condensed book is the Court of Appeals decision. Um, and to address, to answer your question and, and Justice this question, the error in the qualification of the act here, it's not the error, is that the, the act performed by the appellant, that to come to that conclusion, the trial judge had to consider all of the evidence that she accepted and namely the undisputed expert evidence about the nature of the act.
3: But didn't she do that? Show us in the decision the failings of that. It would be helpful if you could pinpoint exactly where each specific failing is.
9: Of course, turning to tab three are the excerpts of the trial judge's decision. And focusing on murder, at paragraph uh, 94, which is at page 19 uh, at tab 3. So the trial judge uh, is addressing intent and murder. And earlier she has accepted uh, Mr. Burke's uh, comments about uh, the chocal being a, quote, regular calm-down move. And we say this highlights the trial judge's error about the qualification of the act on the basis of Um, a partial assessment of the evidence that was relevant to determine the nature of this act. And at paragraph 94 she comes back to this saying that I cannot find such intent. This was a party that suddenly took an unpleasant turn. Mr. Hutchinson was asked to intervene, so going to purpose, and he did what he could to control Mr. Windsor. So she uh, uh, finds that the chokehold uh, was not long and everyone was surprised uh, that Mr. Windsor was not responsive after. And she She then writes, quote, Mr. Burke called the chokehold a regular calm down, implying that he had seen that sort of chokehold before. Mr. Hutchson admitted that he had seen it used when he worked at a local bar and had performed it uh, once before. So this is at paragraph 94 on her reasons for for murder. She doesn't um, speak about any other evidence uh, according to
10: the nature of the act to what it is because... um, Coming down. These are findings of fact. Everything you read to us uh, Mm -hmm. were findings of fact of the first judge.
9: Yes, but she, my point is, she failed to address the experts' evidence about the. They were quite clear. Compression of the neck is a recognized cause of death, and Mr. Milroy accepted. She
3: she did that at the different paragraphs. So if we look at the reasons, she talks about. Paragraph 65, Dr. Milroy, and she, she talks about the findings that are relevant that she's taken into consideration in my mind when she talks about the underlying factors of the cocaine use in the enlarged heart. And then she does it again explicitly when she goes through she has sans, um, evidence from, well, basically from 69 to 72. So I, I just, I feel to see how you say that she didn't consider it because she gives all of that information and at the end sums it up when she looks at it again um, further on. So I just I, I guess maybe I, I'm not I'm not seeing it or I, I'm missing something.
9: Well it's not only it's 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 the, the improper qualification on only part of the evidence. I'm, there's the expert evidence, but there's also the appellant's evidence, because in my, my friend's submissions to you, he is, he is focusing on purpose and on the appellant's admission of purpose, why Mr. Hutchson used this chokehold. But in Mr. Hutchson's own evidence, he admitted, and I think this is relevant, and the trial judge on a reason, either on murder or on self-defense, the child judge never comes back to Mr. Hutchinson admission that he choked with a pretty strong force and that how he described the movement how he choked throughout the chokehold, how he used he did not uh, change the level of force. Mr. Hutchinson had full control over that level of force and he also admitted that he knew because of his own experience that choking could lead to unconsciousness and he also knew that choking, uh, that chokeholds in some occasions can lead to death. This was a likely consequence if they are held because he had seen news reports.
3: Isn't that us going back into the shoes of the trial judge and reevaluating all this evidence? Because at paragraph 41, she starts his summary and some of what you said is in there. So it sounds to me like you're asking us to reassess all the evidence again and you're here on an error of law.
9: No, the, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I uh, just bound someone. This is not what I'm arguing. What I'm arguing is this is all. Is, she might have listed the evidence. Listing the evidence is one thing on what she, uh, she has heard. But later, on the, on the Heather, my conclusions on the facts and all her assessment of both murder and self-defense, she never comes back to this. She I, never disagree.
6: Com- I disagree. I disagree. She comes back um, at paragraphs 94 and 97. In 94, in um, finding that she has a reasonable doubt about the specific intent required for murder, she says, on all of the evidence, I cannot find such intent. And in paragraph 97, she says, there was no evidence that satisfies me Mm -hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt and she makes explicit um, reference to the evidence of Dr. Chasen. Well, that's that's showing that she's preferring one of the expert evidence over the other. So how can we say that she disregarded the evidence when she's telling us she's looked at it all and she's looked at the uh, expert and she's
9: still left with a reasonable doubt about intent? I agree with you that it it stems clearly from her reasons, that she accepted, she she preferred Dr. Chiasson's evidence over Dr. Melroy. That is is plain from her reasoning. However, the trial judge, well, she says on all of this evidence, I I read paragraph 97 as being the the follow-up of paragraph 94. like They go together. This is how I read it. And at paragraph 94, I fail to see where she addresses the appellant's admission of what recognition and admission of what he did because purpose is one thing but in his own evidence he admitted of the level of force that he used, he admitted that what he knew about this force and yet the trial judge does not come back to that and a finding to me that um, illustrates that she failed to consider the whole evidence and by the whole evidence I mean the, uh, the expert evidence and Mr. Uh, Mr. Hutchinson, the appellant's own evidence, is at paragraph 88, where she addresses intent.
6: She's talking about WD there. Yes,
9: exactly. She's talking about WD. And she, and she finds that, if I, well, if I believe Mr. Hutchinson's evidence, I must acquit him of murder. So she sees this evidence as being uh, exculpatory. And uh, Mr. Hutchinson's evidence was that although we put Mr. Windsor in a chokehold, He did so because, again, we're going back to purpose, he did so because he believed Mr. Windsor was about to attack him sorry, or someone else. And this is the important part. He did not intend to kill or harm Mr. Windsor. What we're saying is that on the face of the appellant's evidence, coming to the conclusion that Mr. Hutchinson did not intend to harm Mr. Windsor is an erroneous conclusion in law.
8: These are still submissions on findings of fact. I mean, we also need to take into account that one doesn't parse the reasons of a trial judge. You presume they know the law. And I look at your outline of submissions, and the references are to the, to the record, to the witness's testimony. I think, I think the concern here is that we are dealing with an appeal from an acquittal a narrow ground which, as uh, my colleague says, in many uh, jurisdictions cannot be appealed from, but there's a narrow ground. And the fact that a trial judge must consider all of the relevant evidence is not a gateway into turning this into an appeal on whether her findings of fact, were the findings of fact that you, that the the Court of Appeal, or that even we might have made. You have to be able to point to an error, and you can't do it by parsing this sentence or that paragraph. When you read the reasons as a whole, Mm -hmm. reading them generously, she knew the evidence in this case, she considered the evidence in this case, and she made findings of fact. In order to follow your uh, submissions, we'd have to say that the nature of a chokehold is such that you can't make a finding of fact that he did not intend to cause, Um, he did not have the requisite intent for murder. And that is a new proposition of law.
9: Uh, This is not what we're arguing. What I'm arguing here is that a chokehold is inherently dangerous, This is, but in, inherent dangerousness is a different concept than likelihood of death. I'm not here to say that inherent dangerousness suppresses the, 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 uh, the burden of the Crown to prove likelihood of death, but in this case, the whole evidence established that it was both. It was inherently dangerous and likely to an cause An unreasonable
8: death. verdict, an unreasonable acquittal. It's not a ground of appeal in law.
9: No, I know, but i what I am saying is that the child judge had the child judge give the proper legal effect to her findings of fact, it established the, the not only the inherent dangerousness but the likelihood of death
5: so if you you're in your factum you you point us to j m h yes. and the errors of law, the four non exhaustive lists that justice cromwell cited and I understand these references to all of the evidence, the whole of the evidence you're referring to, his fourth uh, uh, criterion, toute la preuve, all, all of the evidence. But if you read what Justice Cromwell wrote at paragraphs 31 and 32 of JMH, under the heading of all the evidence, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you'll correct me and I'll be happy to be corrected, but it seems to me that he wasn't saying a trial judge has a responsibility to account for all of the evidence in the conclusion on the question of the question bef- before them 31 paragraph 31 starts with a warning against subjecting individual pieces of evidence to the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt to 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 to, to to break up to fragment the the whole of the evidence in a way that would do disservice to the to the accused and then 32 starts with that old saw a trial judge is not required to refer to every item of evidence considered or to detail the way each item of evidence was assessed mm-hmm. so even though he's saying the failure to consider all of the evidence in relation to the ultimate issue of guilt or innocence is an error of law. Justice Cromwell is reminding us, and again, maybe I'm wrong here, Met Laborde, not to do what you're suggesting that we do, which is go after bits of evidence that weren't apparently were accounted for in parts of the judgment, but not in the key part of the judgment that that you feel is uh, determinative of guilt and innocence. So, ha, it, it, is the, are you giving an an overly expanded reading of this failure to consider all of the evidence as a as an error of law? To
9: answer your questions, um, your your question, Justice, Justice Cassera we we argue that here, the trial judge reason read as a whole in a holistic and functional manner to us is illustrating the fact that although she listed all of the evidence that she uh, was presented and in, in in the end what she considers uh, on to into her, her conclusions on the fact her reasons about intent about subjective foresight for for triers um, for for um, uh, lawyers to understand and parties to understand her reason should include the evidence, the important, the relevant pieces of evidence that she accepts and on which she makes her finding. And we understand from her reason that she accepts the appellant's evidence. But the appellant, what we're saying is the appellant's the nature of his evidence in law demonstrated intent to cause bodily harm. Yet the failure to find that The conclusion to find that he did not intend to cause bodily harm stems from what? From her failure to consider the whole evidence to determine the nature
2: of the act. But is that really what the trial judge decided? And I come back to the point that I made to your friend with respect to the difference between murder and manslaughter. I mean, the requisite intent for murder involves some assessment of appreciation of likelihood yes. of, of death or recklessness. It, when I read the trial judge's reasons, how I read them is it has not been demonstrated that the accused uh, contemplated a likelihood of death or was reckless in that regard. Thus, there is an acquittal on the murder charge. Then the trial judge turns to uh, manslaughter. and inherent in going to self-defense is the notion that what really happened here was an assault and 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 that was an unlawful act otherwise you never get to self-defense mm-hmm. and 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 so there was an intent to cause harm of some sort but without the contemplation the, the requisite mental state of saying this could kill him. this could kill him I'm, I'm reckless as to whether a This could kill uh, um, uh, the victim. And and so there's not enough to demonstrate, the trial judge says, I think, to demonstrate there was a a contemplation of a likelihood of death, but there clearly was enough to to indicate there was an intent to cause some harm. But I'm not going to convict on manslaughter because... It was not an unlawful act because there was self-defense. So I think I'm just, I don't want to be unfair to you in your argument, but you seem to say the trial judge at no point um, concluded that there was an intent to cause harm. I I think, in fact, the trial judge did uh, conclude there was intent to cause harm, but it wasn't. To the point of the contemplation of the likelihood of death or recklessness of it. I mean, if you put somebody in a chokehold, it's going to hurt them. It's going to cause them discomfort. It's it's a, it's 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 a form of assault. So it's not that you know this was a completely innocent act, but was it an act which occurred in a context which demonstrated the requisite intent for murder, and and. Um, the trial judge said no, that was her conclusion. But implicit in going to self-defense was it, it was sufficient to support manslaughter, but there was, a reason, there, was a, there was a defense at law. I don't know if that's too convoluted, but I, it, it, you see, to me the trial judge said there was an intent to cause harm, but not the contemplation of it to the extent that it would reckless as to causing death.
9: That might be Justice Roe, but what, what I read, if, if I may, from the child judge's assessment, from paragraph 88, was that he did not intend to harm Mr. Windsor, by, and, and she might be meaning to cause bodily harm, which we say, I understand. What we're saying is the child judge on only part of the evidence, and I'm not going to come back to that. I've said that many times, but the child judge improperly addressed only part of the evidence, which led her to find that this was just a regular calm-down move. This was a trite use of force. This is what it implies. And on that finding, I accept that Mr. Hutchson did not intend to harm Mr. Windsor, and his death is accidental. Well, the evidence that she accepted, and I'm not asking you to review the facts, I'm just trying to illustrate the error, the failure to consider the totality of the evidence that she accepted, and, and starting with the appellant's evidence. If you turn to tab 8 of our condensed book... Um...
2: But, but grabbing somebody by the neck is not accidental. No. It's intentional. And, 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 and uh, I mean, you get convicted of something if you grab somebody by the neck and hold on to them and, 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 and squeeze their neck, because it's at very least an assault. And at law, it would ordinarily be seen as an unlawful act. And if it results in the death of the victim, Ah, now you've got your, your elements for manslaughter. Anyway, I'm repeating myself. I beg your pardon.
9: We say that on the basis, and I'm going to turn to, to paragraph 80, uh, to um, uh, tab 8 of our condensed book, and um, try to point to the court aspects of the appellant's evidence that the trial judge. Before
6: we get to a, a, a deep dive into the evidence, I still would like to come back to the crucial point, which is the Crown usually cannot appeal an acquittal. There is no ground of unreasonable acquittal in Canadian law. And you have to show an error of law. And we have been sitting, we've read all the materials, we've read transcripts, we've read... I don't know what error of law we're talking about here. I don't know which one you're suggesting, but more importantly, I don't know what the Court of Appeal said the error of law is. The Court of Appeal recognizes that paragraph 9... Crown appeals are limited, and says, having reviewed the evidence and the reasons in this matter, we find the appellate has met that burden in this case, and appellate intervention is warranted. There is no articulation by the Court of Appeal in their judgment about the error of law that they're dealing with. This is the same kind of phrase that gave rise to the shepherd idea that I've read everything, I've considered everything, And here it is. Should we not be requiring in these exceptional Crown appeals an an express articulation by the Crown of what the error is? And I'm going to put you to that. What is this error? right? What is it? And an express articulation about how we ground jurisdiction to even hear the appeal by asking the courts of appeal to say, what area of law is engaged here? So, what error of law is engaged here, and should we be requiring the Crown and um, the Courts of Appeal to articulate precisely uh, the reason why there's jurisdiction?
9: Well, I believe the error of law, to answer your question, Justice Martin, the error of law pertaining to murder sits at paragraph five of the the trial, um, the appellate court's uh, reason, which is at tab two of our condensed book. (laughs) When they found that the, res- the trial judge failed. It, this is what I've been saying, and, and, and I'm probably not articulating myself uh, with sufficient clarity. But but the Court of Appeal
6: didn't articulate it in this sense.
9: And they say at paragraph five, the trial
6: judge did not address this issue. Is it a legal issue? Is it a factual issue? Is it an evidentiary issue? Um, it, it has to be a legal issue before it crosses the threshold into the jurisdiction for you to appeal. So just to say something is an issue, again, it's not a sufficient articulation for us even to grapple with what's going
9: on. But is it insufficient to allow appellate review? I don't think so. I don't think um, uh, that here the reasons of the appellate court are insufficient to the point that they prevent appellate review. Um, and my friend did not argue that that's either. And here, uh, although, You are correct. The appellate reasons are quite uh, short and they're quite sparse. But on the murder charge, we say that the error was the failure to consider the totality of the evidence. And the inherent danger of an act, maybe I can put it that way, in Cooper. Cooper was a strangulation case, as, as you know. And in Cooper, this court found that the likelihood of death stemmed from the very nature of the act. So we're saying here, we're applying the same logic, blocking someone's, that's not new, Lemon did not uh, create new law, blocking someone's airway to the point where uh, our blood flow to the brain interferes with a person's vital function. But she had expert evidence
8: on this very point, and this very point was a finding of fact, so she considered the evidence on this point, and she found that it it was not sufficient to establish mens rea. So what's the error?
4: Metro that the she boat. should
8: have been, because it's inherently dangerous, she had to find intent?
9: No, she had to go and to look into the likelihood. She had to go in, in, and look into the... Uh, I'm sorry, Justice Jamal, I will right. go into your sorry. question afterwards. Um, she had to address the common sense in France, and she failed to address it. It's not the failure to draw, to draw it. Let me make myself clear. The she, error that the... the Court of Appeal uh, uh, intervened upon was the trial judge's failure to complete a full menstrual inquiry because if she had given the proper legal effects to her findings of fact, she would have then had to co- go to the common sense inference, all, all and she I, did not.
8: All I would add is that Cooper says the jury's entitled to infer, yes. not that they're required to but, infer.
9: But the the jury has to be be informed, has to be instructed that they may draw. And the Court of Appeal was quite clear at paragraph 6 of their reasons. As the Supreme Court of Canada provided in Cooper, since breathing is essential to life, it would be reasonable. And they specifically added, though not required, that to infer the accused knew that strangulation was likely to cause death. So they are not, they're, they're clearly here indicating that their issue is not with the child judge failure to draw the inference she did not turn her mind to it. Yeah,
2: but you know it's not like in the in the movies where in the dramatic scene the murder scene when someone grabs somebody else by the neck and as soon as they lose consciousness they're dead it's all, it all occurs in one instant. That's not how it works your, 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 your brain and your spinal cord keeps telling your heart and your lungs and your other organs to continue to work until the brain and the spinal cord stop sending those signals so the first thing that happens if you if you lose uh, oxygen to the brain is you you lose consciousness it doesn't mean you're dead It means you're unconscious it's like the difference when you get a general anesthetic you're unconscious you're not dead and and so ordinarily someone who's unconscious and the cause of their being unconscious is removed well they get they get the 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 blood supply goes to the brain again the air goes to the brain again and presto they become conscious again so bringing about unconsciousness is not putting someone on an inevitable path to death I agree yeah
9: I agree with you and this is precisely with the with the 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 expert evidence established and this is why I'm saying that here, and this is why the Court of Appeal found that, and that the evidence in this case suggested as much. They are indicating here that the child, had the child judge given the proper legal effects to her findings of fact and to the undisputed expert evidence, she would have had to address the common sense inference of knowledge. And there was no question about the appellant's ability to draw the common sense inference. And I will, um, I'm, I'm seeing the time go by, and I will address the second issue of self-defense.
4: Could I ask you just on the first thing, the, the first point? Um, what I took you to be saying, and um, you just agreed with Justice rowe but what I took you to be saying is that the evidence showed that the accused intended to cause unconsciousness, and that was the basis for the error with respect to the error of law with respect to murder is that not correct no. because that's what I see what the Court of Appeal is referring to in paragraph five
9: no they're saying including the possibility that he that that the person uh, fell unconscious because it was not it did not uh, the Court of Appeal did not say that mr. Hutchson it was it was an inference that the trial judge could draw from the evidence that mr. Hudson the appellant's intention was to induce unconsciousness but they were very cautious not to um, um, say that the child judge had to come to that inference. This, what, what I was saying about bodily harm earlier, uh, f- f- rendering someone unconscious, of course, by ch- way of choking, is necessarily, uh, uh, it necessarily amounts to unconsciousness in, the, in these circumstances. But
3: you just said could have made the inference. Well, she didn't based yes. on the facts, so it comes back to what... Many of us have been saying that it's a reassessment of the evidence as though we're at that level. It's not an error of law. And Justice I pointed you to Section 32 of GMH that says she doesn't have an obligation, if we're looking at the four points of an error of law, to look at every specific piece of evidence. And that is what I'm hearing from you. You want us to do.
9: No, this is not, I'm sorry, this is about someone, this is not um, what I want this court to do, and I would not bother with this court. Maybe I'm not uh, expressing myself clearly, but when you look at paragraph 5, at the middle of the paragraph in the in the Court of Appeals reason, just to make it clear, they're saying it's, it's the, the fourth, fifth line, while the respondent admitted They're going back to the respondent's evidence, uh, Mr. Hudson's evidence. He admitted that he was trying to stop Mr. Windsor from struggling, including the possibility rendering him uh, unconscious. The trial judge did not assess this evidence with respect to what he believed or intended, considering the dangerousness of squeezing Mr. Windsor's neck to the point of unconsciousness. She did not consider this evidence, his admission of intent, in finding his intent. This is the error of law, the failure to consider the totality of the evidence, and then the failure to address the common sense inference. Um, And as Justice, um, I believe it was Justice Caserar that pointed out earlier during my friend's submission, one of the elements of evidence, and I will address this because it's uh, equally relevant on menslaughter and self-defense, one thing that the child judge failed to address in her reasons in Uh, um, on murder and on uh, manslaughter is the injuries the grievous injuries caused by the chokehold a chokehold is one thing a gunshot you pull the trigger the bullet goes goes out of the chamber and it's done a chokehold is a level of pressure you apply on someone's neck and the evidence here was clear the appellant had full control over the level of force he was applying at all times. A chokehold is again not a gunshot. It can be released once it is applied. And either on and, and, and on, either on murder or on manslaughter, the child judge did not address the magnitude of the force used by the appellant to choke Mr. Win, Windsor, which if we come back to purpose, the purpose that he said he he, he he used this force for was to quote restrain him, and try to throw him to the ground. Now, with that, with that said, I'm going to turn to my second point. Unless there are further questions from the court on, on um, murder, I will address manslaughter. So, I've said that earlier, um, but I'm trying to find my. Going to uh, my roadmap, hopefully it is a... Uh, May I just ask the
6: question that was posed, uh, Mr. Lacy said that uh, if, if we find there's an error of law on the self-defense that we send it back for manslaughter, uh, do you agree with that assessment?
9: We agree with that assessment. So turning to my roadmap, I would ask you to go back, um, invite the court to go back to tab one. So with the time that is left, uh, I will address four major uh, points Um, And the the crucial um, element here, um, we say, is that the trial judge, in all of her reasons, failed to determine what a reasonable person would have done in those circumstances. She addressed the appellant's perceptions, but she did not address what a reasonable person would have done here in the circumstances or in comparable circumstances. Second, I will address how the use of the expressions in and of themselves, the known calm-down move and the regular calm-down move, are problematic and illustrate what the court below found to be a solely subjective approach to self-defense. I uh, will then turn to more specifically on uh, paragraph 120 of the trial judge's reasons, which address nature and proportionality of the force. And lastly, I will address the trial judge's failure to assess the whole evidence over the course of the whole incident, because we say that she addressed all of the um, reasonableness factors at the inception of the chokehold, uh, looking at her, her assessment of the um, uh, of the evidence. So, the trial judge, we say, applied the wrong legal principles. She, as I just alluded to, uh, addressed the appellant's perceptions and not uh, his actions to on. Uh, with the point of view of a a reasonable person. And it is one thing to cite the law correctly and to uh, say that we are addressing reasonableness, but courts and judges are, are, are judged upon what they do and not what they say. And here, clearly, her reasons demonstrate that she did not ever turn her mind to what a reasonable person would have done in the
10: circumstances. And this is the problem. This is a solely subjective approach. So when the trial judge says in paragraph 122, um, it is my view that the Crown has not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the chokehold was not reasonable in all of the circumstances. So you say that uh, she used that expression, was not reasonable, but she did not mean it.
9: I say that the trial judge knew what the legal standard was, but when she applied it to the evidence, she failed to apply it properly. Nowhere, if you look, I have one, a, a, looking at her reasons, I invite the court to ask ask themselves one question. Where, anywhere in her reason, does she ask herself what would a reasonable person have done in the circumstances? Would a reasonable person have used this level of force to choke Mr. Windsor for the purpose of restraining him and throwing him to the ground. Would a reasonable person have pursued the chokehold once bystanders, like witnesses? Isn't
8: there a difference between saying what a reasonable person would have done and was what he did reasonable?
9: Well, the trial judge did not ask herself, I, I can put it that way also, what did, was what Mr. Hutchson did was the pursuance of the chokehold after people started screaming at him that Mr. Windsor was turning blue to stop that it was enough. Was this reasonable? You, won't, you, you can look at her reasons, you won't find that question.
4: Isn't the, word, isn't the use of the word would in paragraph 120 Uh, indicative of a constructive standard being applied because that's the way I read it I mean it could have been clearer but when it says would have seemed the trial judge could have added would have seemed or would be to a reasonable person Uh, but doesn't that indicate a constructive standard rather than a subjective that's the way I think uh, I read it especially in light of what follows
9: what the way I read it is if you look at paragraph 120 the evidence and, and the, the elements that she is referring to first are all uh, are the definition of the threat and the purpose are all confined to the inception of the chokehold at the beginning before Mr. Windsor um, was put in a chokehold. So and, and then um, Looking down, um, so Mr. Windsor was brought. Uh, Mr. Hudson, I'm sorry, was brought in the situation at the request of Ms. Fort Perkins, and he observed Mr. Windsor physically resisting attempts to get him to leave. This comes from Mr. Hudson's evidence, so it's from his evidence. Mr. Hudson tried to pull Mr. Windsor away again. This is Mr. Hudson's evidence. This is from him, her, him his, I'm sorry, perspective. Uh, but he was not able to, and himself was hit in the process, which is evidence that stemmed only from his evidence. And with his injured ha- right hand, many potential forms of control were likely unavailable. This again comes from Mr. Windsor, uh, Mr. Uh, she draws this from Mr. Hutchinson's evidence. So when she um, ultimately uh, ends up by saying, uh, known calm down move, which is a force that is known, and I'll come back to that later, a known calm down move that could have been executed from behind would have seemed proportional in the circumstances. My view is that she is what she is actually saying is that it would have seemed proportional to Mr. Hudson in the circumstances. She is addressing his perception. He he was hit in the process, he tried to pull him backwards but he was unable to and um, he he had an injured hand so A non calm down move in the situation would have seemed proportional. This is is addressing Mr. Hutchinson's perception, not the the point of view of a reasonable person in this situation. But is it,
2: it, I mean, the use of the passive voice is problematic, right? So you always use the active voice, don't use the passive voice. But um, is, is, uh, coming back to Justice Jamal's point, is not implicit in this that it was both subjectively the case that uh, you know it was proportional in the circumstances for someone who in that situation a reasonable person in that situation would have seen things the same way that Mr. Hodgson did. It's not the reasonable person not in those circumstances. It's the reasonable person in those circumstances.
9: I agree.
2: So, so, um, I mean, mean, it's telegraphic, it uses the passive voice, in that sense it's poorly drafted. Okay, but we we don't give out marks here for drafting. Um, But I think implicit in it is the notion that for Mr. Hodgson himself, this was proportional, and for a person in the situation of Mr. Hodgson, a reasonable person, it would also be proportional. That is how I read. That's how I'm reading the reasons.
9: Well, I beg to disagree with your reading of the reasons, Justice Rowe. But this is not what I'm seeing, and 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 the fact that. Mr. And, and Mr. Hudson's perspective and his perception is not relevant to the objective assessment of the reasonableness of the but response. I think you're
6: parsing it. Um, you're, you're looking at the perspective of uh, the appellant, but the recitation of the facts goes into the evidence of each of the witnesses, points out areas that you've discussed, turning blue, telling him to stop. These were all circumstances that were alive in the trial judge's mind. And so, you know, when you go back to the test in Wall, it is whether the the reasons actually demonstrate that all the evidence hasn't been considered. And so that's the matrix that the modified objective test works from. That is all of the evidence, and we have it in her statement of facts.
9: But yet she takes the time reading her reasons and how she decided to construct them. When you look at her, her, her assessment of Paragraph C of Section 34 that goes from Paragraph 112 to 121, 120, 20, she identifies, just as this Court and Kill said that they should do, precisely consider, um, uh, define every relevant factor and assess uh, all the relevant evidence that is um, uh, relevant to these factors so going having to go it it doesn't I'm it doesn't make sense that the child judge that took the time to include several well numerous pieces of evidence coming from the accused point of view on nature and proportionality would say, "Well, it it, I've already stated she has already stated the the uh, the evidence of the accused also she had listed that also in, in her findings of fact yet she found that it was relevant to add it on their nature and proportionality. So why the different treatment of the, the witness's evidence and the gravity and the magnitude of the, the injuries and the magnitude of the force? So we say that she failed to address these evidence, these pieces of evidence that she listed earlier. Well, she,
0: even when you look at 1.2, she <coughs> says that in considering the factors above, it is my view that the Crown... Has not proved beyond a reasonable doubt that the truck hold was not reasonable in all the circumstances.
9: In all the circumstances, yes, but that's a conclusion. That's her conclusion. When you look at her reasoning, there is no, um, she limited her reasoning to the fact that this force was a known force, a regular force, that the appellant was brought into this situation. There is no assessment of what a reasonable person what would a reasonable person have pursued the chokehold. We say there was, an, there was a pivotal point in this situation, and we agree that it occurred quite quickly.
10: What do we do at paragraph 120 when she says, uh, second line, it, was, it is well accepted that a person in mm-hmm. a threatening situation is not required. So she's not referring to the accused, she's referring to a person. Yes. So she's comparing with the situation of somebody else. So, and to me it is uh, another indicia that she uh, consider what a reasonable person would have done in the same circumstances.
9: Well, when she's saying, uh, thank you for your question, Justice Gauthier, when she's saying that a, a person in a threatening situation is not required, she's stating the law, she's stating the accepted concept, and we are in agreement with that. Uh, we're not saying that Mr. Hudson had to assess to a nicety the force he was applying, yet there's a difference with app- with assessing to a nicety and and using whatever force you feel is necessary in a circumstance but here when she she says that, but she further she, she she under uh this header, she goes on to address only evidence that comes from the appellant's perspective only um his point of view this is our our um, and this is enhanced by the fact that. She accepts, once again, at paragraph, um, I'm, I've lost my paragraph here, but uh, that this was a, a, um, a regular, calm-down move. This is, again, present in her statement. And we say that this is problematic on three, on three crucial um, elements. A known force this court knows that is not a proxy for reasonableness, and it cannot replace judgment. A regular force, or a force that is used on a regular basis in a, in a person's life, or that they are uh, desensitized to, is certainly not a proxy for reasonableness, either. It cannot replace judgment. Um, and but even if
6: we accept, let's accept uh, for the purpose of argument, that there needed to be the objective question of, odd, would a reasonable person in like circumstances have stopped earlier? Okay. Have stopped when other people who could perhaps see the victim um, better s- saw the color and said stop. Um, given the rest of the evidence, why is that a material? Um, why do you say that that would be a material error that would you know have affected the outcome to the requisite standard?
9: Because a force, as you know, can be or become excessive, and here we say that the, the, the evidence that the trial judge accepted, there is one crucial element that she accepts, it's at paragraph 78 of her reason, is that, there's that the, the, this chokehold that she finds uh, did not last very long and did quite quickly. It was Mr. Burke who put an end to it, who separated the two men on the ground. So the short duration of the chokehold is due to Mr. Burke's intervention. It's not it's not um, a fact of Mr. Of Mr. Hutchson. So the, the fact that the trial judge failed to address the evolution of the situation, the, to consider the whole situation, despite the fact that it, it was over quite quickly, because there's no indicia of time. We
6: don't have time. We don't
9: know. But clearly, and, and no one is here debating the fact that it not, did not last very long but it did not relieve the trial judge to address the whole evidence, the whole incident, and she had evidence that she accepted that uh, established that this situation changed, that Mr. Hutchison, not only was he aware, uh, did he know from his um, common knowledge that he had had seen uh, police interventions where people had died, here, applying this chokehold on Mr. Windsor, um, witnesses told him, yelled at him repeatedly to stop. Yes, but just
3: a second. If you look at paragraph 94, the trial judge also refers to Mr. Burke's evidence. So you make it sound like when you're talking about this chokehold that it was just Mr. Hodgson's point of view, but even Mr. Burke looks at it and he he called it a regular calm down. So we just got to look at it in the context and not just say that It was only Mr. Hodgson that had this point of view with regards to uh, the act of of the chokehold.
9: I agree with you, in fact, but these are reasons. uh, Paragraph 94 was was, uh, uh, on murder, but I totally agree with you. The use of this expression, regular calm down move, comes straight from Mr. Burke's testimony. And in fact, fact, it is really important to understand, and this is at... um, the, the relevant excerpt of Mr. Burke's testimony sits at uh, tab 6 of our condensed book. Mr. Burke quickly uh, well, uh, told the, the council that at first, yes, he thought it was a regular calm-down move, did not think nothing of it. But he quickly changed his mind and voiced his concern. Um, he, it is, this is at page 65. The evidence,
3: from how I read it, was pretty clear that when Hodgson was told, stop, there's
9: something wrong, he'd like go what the trial judge accepted at paragraph 78 of her reasons was that Mr. Burke separated the two men on the ground so clearly she did not accept his version of how it ended because although she accepts his evidence what he said was that oh I let go and I heard Miss Fort Perkins tell me to let go well I let go and then I heard in fact this is more more like it I let go and then I heard Miss Fort Perkins telling me to let go there was never a question that Mr. Burke put an end to this chokehold, according to the appellant. There was no grabbing of the arm. But, but the I guess judge this comes again
3: to our comments, that it's a finding of fact.
9: No, but I was just sir, your question, Justice Bonson, to the fact that this is a crucial finding on the trial judge's part, that this chokehold ended because a third party had to put an end to it. This was a major consideration on the nature and proportionality of a force in self-defense yet she failed to address it. It's nowhere in paragraph 120. Yes, you can tell me that she listed it, and it's a finding that she makes at paragraph 78, but it's nowhere on the reasonableness of the force. And she finds that since death is surprising, I found that the Crown did not disprove that this was um, disproportionate. or proportionate. So basically, she... Death here, we're seeing, is not the only adverse consequence of this chokehold, but she failed to turn her mind to it in the context of Mr. Hutchinson having full control over the level of pressure and the duration of the chokehold, which ended when a third person had to physically intervene. This was highly relevant on self-defense, and it's nowhere in her reasons on self-defense, and it should have been there. And I know that the trial judge did not have um, the, the, the reasons and kill because it, it had been rendered afterwards but it is a um, crucial finding that she, she, it, it was to her since she made it at paragraph 78 she accepts that but she fails to consider it it is um, uh, we say uh, an illustration of the improper treatment of only part of the evidence on self-defense and this we say is the result of her finding that the chokehold was only a trite use of force. From the start, she accepted Mr. Burke's evidence. that it was only, This was not, to, to rephrase Justice Rowe's uh, comments earlier, this was quite accurate, in fact, Justice Rowe, in light of the evidence in this case. This was a chokehold. This was not an arm lock. This I was guess not the last
3: thing I'll say to that is paragraph 12, when the, when the trial judge is looking at Burke's uh, Evidence, she says that um, when he pulled on Hodgson, his arm came away easily.
9: Yes, but he had to. Miss, the fact, the relevant fact, is that Mr. Hodgson, she finds, she still finds that Mr. Hodgson had to intervene to separate the two men on the ground. Mr. Mr. Hodgson did not let go by his own free will, did not realize or did not decide to let go. And this has to be put in the context of his own evidence. Again, at tab 8 of our condensed book, when he was questioned by his uh, counsel, if you turn to page 423 at tab 8, so the question was, at the at the bottom of the page what was your intention when you put the chokehold on Bradley Windsor to restrain him and try to throw him to the ground and even his own counsel acknowledges this the change in the situation the fact that well factually they hit the ground Mr Windsor collapsed to the ground why did you continue you continued your chokehold answer correct page 424 why Answer, I was afraid of him. Okay, how long were you planning to continue your chokehold? Answer, until he stopped struggling. Question, when did you discontinue your chokehold? When he stopped struggling. There are a lot of things in there. The trial judge accepted this evidence. Was it... Was the purpose, was the response still in line with the purpose? What was the purpose of pursuing the chokehold after they collapsed to the ground? What was Mr. Windsor's threat? Because this is an ongoing circle. The threat has to be reassessed. What was the threat then? What was the purpose of pursuing this chokehold? I was afraid of him. Was it still a defensive purpose? And was the use of this forceful chokehold still objectively reasonable upon that moment, would a reasonable person have pursued this forceful chokehold then?
4: Do you agree that with Mr. Uh, Lacey's uh, comment that there was no finding that the intent was to render unconscious? There's no finding, there's no evidence. Because well, st- stopping somebody from struggling is different from rendering them un- unconscious. Obviously, if they're unconscious, they will stop struggling. But the the evidence only went as far as stopping struggling and never to an intent to render unconscious. Do you agree with that?
9: I agree with that. This is an inference the trial judge could have and and, and by no means am I saying that she was wrong not to draw it. It was an inference that she could have drawn. But the fact is the intent to, the fact is you have to put his admission of intending to choke until he stops struggling in the context of his knowledge of the fact that he testified that he had seen it used before, and he, he said, quote, efficiently when he worked at a bar. So Mr. Hudson had well, at this that, knowledge. So doesn't
4: that just show why the Court of Appeal went too far in paragraph five in talking about possibly rendering him unconscious? Because that's not what the evidence, as I understand what you just said, it's, that's actually not what the evidence showed. Uh, well, the evidence showed that it was to stop him struggling.
9: It was to stop him struggling, you're correct. But the fact that it was—I um, say that from Mr. hutchinson's evidence, it was clear that the trial judge could have drawn that inference. But the Court of Appeal merely acknowledged that in, from, his, from his evidence, she had to acknowledge and she had to address, address the question, and she failed to do so.
0: Unfortunately, your time is up.
9: I understand. Thank you. So those are my respectful submission. I believe this appeal should be denied. Thank submitted.
0: you very much.
11: Thank you, Chief Justice. Ontario's intervention focuses on one overarching question. What is a trier of fact supposed to do when assessing the nature and proportionality of a response under Section 34.2 In my submissions, I will highlight two points about Ontario's answer to that question. My first point will be about the nature of the response. Ontario's position is that the phrase refers to the extent of injury or harm, which could reasonably have been expected from the responsive actions of the accused. My second point will be about the proportionality of the response. Ontario's position is that a response that starts off as proportional can become disproportionate. And the trier of fact must account for the entire course of responsive conduct by the accused. I'll start with a point about the nature of the response. That is very broad language, but Ontario's position is that the feature of the response which matters under section 342G is the extent of injury or harm which could reasonably have been expected from the accused's actions. Ontario's Factum traces this approach back to the old self-defense provisions and the case law interpreting them, including Justice Martin's seminal decision in Baxter. Ontario's Factum also explains why Parliament did not seek to depart from that approach when it enacted Section 34(2g). One compelling piece of evidence that Parliament did not seek to depart from that approach is the role that Section 342G plays in the amended self-defense provisions. Section 342G is one of several factors the trier of fact must consider when assessing reasonableness. The purpose of the reasonableness inquiry, as this court confirmed in Cahill, is to strike an appropriate balance between respecting the security of the person who acts and the security of the person who is acted upon. Section 34 2G plays a crucial role in striking that appropriate balance. By directing the trier of fact to consider the nature of the response, the provision respects the interests of the person against whom the response was directed, or, to use the language of Cahill, the person who was acted upon. To what extent was that person's interest in life and security of the person endangered by the actions of the accused. That is the question the trier of fact must come to grips with when assessing the nature of a response under Section 34.2g. My second point is about the proportionality of the response and how it is to be assessed. Ontario's position is that a response that starts off as proportional can become disproportionate. There are several examples of this in the case law decided under both the old and the new self-defense provisions. One category of cases is where an accused person faces a threat, neutralizes the threat, but nevertheless persists in their application of force. Courts have often found such conduct to be disproportionate and you'll find examples of those cases cited at paragraph 27 of Ontario's Factum. Those cases stand for a straightforward principle. Proportionality is concerned not only with the initial deployment of force by an accused person, but with the entire course of responsive conduct in which that person engaged. Ontario's submission is that the trier of fact should keep that principle in mind when assessing proportionality under Section 34.2G.
2: I would think that a, a variation on that is where the consequences of the application of force are greater than had been anticipated. For example, the person who's being confined says, I can't breathe, whereas... That might not have been something that the person applying the force had anticipated, but when they're made aware of it, I mean, that, that affects the reasonableness of the application of force.
11: It does, Justice Rowe, <coughs> and the way it affects the analysis is where the accused acquires knowledge about the effect that their actions are having on the victim, that knowledge is a relevant circumstance of the person, to use the language of Section 34(2). Uh, and because it is relevant under Section 34 too, it feeds into and informs the inquiry into proportionality. So we would agree that where that knowledge is acquired, it is relevant to assessing proportionality. Uh, I right. can see I've reached the end of my time. Uh, yes. Unless there are any further questions, Thank those you. are my submissions. Thank you very
0: much. Any reply?
1: say hey, one thing in reply to, I think, come back to something that Justice Martin asked about and also Justice Kassar asked my friend about. where What is the legal error in the first issue? but se- On the second issue, what's, what's the legal error? We have a statement from the Court of Appeal that the legal error was the trial judge improperly took a solely subjective approach to assessing the issue of the perceived threat, with no reference whatsoever to the reasons, no analysis whatsoever as to where that's demonstrated in the reasons. And it morphs today in my friend saying, well, it's really about a failure to consider evidence. It's really a sufficiency of reasons on this question. And I think it comes back to what you highlighted, Justice Cassiter, uh and other members of the court at JM in JMH. You have to be very scrupulous as an appellate court.
4: In fairness, Mr. Lacey, perhaps it's simply a statement that they applied the wrong standard. So I think that's the way I read it. And perhaps it could have been expanded upon. But what I would like to ask you about on uh, self-defense is, we've just heard Ontario enunciate some principles that would be applicable. I take it you don't take any issue with those principles and that you would say even applying all those principles, the trial judges' analysis, even though it predated Cahill, uh, is consistent with the proper framework for applying self-defense, but you don't take any issue with what we've just heard. Do you?
1: I, I don't take any issue with the foundational principles identified by the Attorney General for Ontario, which in my submission have long been accepted. I mean, I'm not criticizing Ontario for pointing that's a good way to assess the issue of proportionality and instruct a jury to explain it in those ways, but these are not new concepts.
4: And in terms of the reevaluation as the circumstances unfold, in this, uh, he, they, he just said that that was, uh, the Attorney General's counsel said that that was something that the court the trier of fact should consider in this circumstance there wasn't anybody saying, I can't breathe, that should have led to a re-evaluation. We just had this, the situation end. So that principle, even if accepted, doesn't render the trial judge's reasons deficient. Right. And
1: I'm loath to comment more generally beyond the appellate situation. Those are that's the only submissions in reply. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
0: Please be seated. Thank you for your patience. I would like to thank Council for their submissions. Um, At Laborde, in spite of your uh, best efforts, the Court is ready to release its decision, and uh, we are all of the opinion to allow the appeal and to restore the acquittal reasons to follow. Thank you.